Well, open your Bible with me today, Isaiah chapter 51. And I'm going to start a little series of messages that I've been thinking about for, oh, months and months. And I've got three or four series I'm working on. I want to do one on the Holy Spirit coming up. I want to do one on eschatology, the Lord's return, and the related events of it. Go through that in a fresh way, I hope. I want to do one on uh, how God reveals himself to mankind in the successive stages down through history. And then I wanted to do one on Baptists. And Baptists won out this week. I was studying all four of them and praying, which one do you want me to do, Lord? And I just kind of felt the inclination to go this direction. So this morning, the Baptist recipe, the Baptist recipe, and what do I mean by that? Well, stand to your feet with me, please. The book of Isaiah, chapter number 51 in your Bible, the book of Isaiah, chapter 51. Now, if you get there real quickly, then go to Proverbs 22. Isaiah 51 and Proverbs 22. I'm just reading brief scriptures here. You have to trust me that I've put them in the proper context and I'm using them in the right way. Isaiah 51 and verse 1. Hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness. That's saved people, isn't it? Ye that seek the Lord. Look unto the rock from whence ye are hewn, and to the hole of the pit whence ye are digged. The ideas of a stone quarry, and that there's a great mountain of rock. And somebody is there in the old days with a chisel and a hammer, today with dynamite or explosives, and we're chipping away at that. And he said, Go back to that rock quarry from which you were hewn. Go back to your source. Go back to your origin. And then in the book, and and then he compares it to a pit, the hole of the pit from which you were digged. And so we think of some mine or some pit where men or workers are digging for ore or for gold or whatever it may be. And he says, go back to your source. Go back to your origin. Go back to that from whence you came. Now, Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 28. Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. And he's referring, of course, to the landmarks, that they, the posts that they put in. Today's surveyors call them surveyor stakes. The surveyor comes and measures a lot or a piece of ground and he puts stakes down in the ground to mark the corners of it. And here he is saying, remove not those ancient landmarks that your predecessors have put in the ground, those definitions and parameters of who you are and what you believe. You may be seated. <clears throat> Question. Are you ready to answer my question? Question. Are you a Baptist? Well, if you are, why are you? Is it important? Why does our church identify itself out there on the sign with 
the word Baptist. What makes a Baptist a Baptist? Is there really any essential difference between a Baptist and a Presbyterian or a Methodist or an Episcopalian or a Lutheran or a Pentecostal? How significant are those differences if they, if they exist? Well, I want to illustrate it with the Baptist recipe. What do I mean by the Baptist recipe? Well, we all know what a recipe is. My wife has stacks of, if she lived to be 300, she wouldn't live long enough to cook all those recipes that she's got at home. Book after book of them, and you look at them, they're all the same, aren't they? They have a list of ingredients, a cup and a dash and a whatever of all this. And you put several things together, and you come up with a dish. You come up with something that is good. Now, I think of cornbread. I love cornbread. And cornbread, what do you have to have to make cornbread? Ladies, I hope you know. You should know, but in this world of today, I'm not sure everybody knows how to make cornbread, but... Number one, you've got to have cornmeal, do you not? You've got to have some oil. You've got to have probably some eggs and some salt, a little pinch of salt and some baking soda and some baking powder and some buttermilk or milk soured in some form. And you mix them all up together and you put it in the oven and you have cornbread. Now, interestingly, there are even different flavors of cornbread. There's plain old cornbread. There is jalapeno cornbread when you put some peppers in it. There is broccoli cornbread that some of you ladies have made here and I've eaten, and it's, it, it's a salad inside the cornbread. You put all kinds of stuff in there. And then uh, sometimes we take little pieces of the dough and drop it over here, and we make it into what we call hush puppies. Where did that name ever come from? hush puppy, something that you put in your mouth. <laughs> and then you have hoe cakes, and you pat it out flat and put it on a hoe and stick it over a fire. And we've never eaten a genuine hoe cake probably in this building, but hoe cakes. And we've got flatbread, and we got all kinds of stuff, but it's all cornbread. If you left the cornmeal out, you would not have cornbread. Agreed? All right, now, let's take that over into the spiritual realm with Baptists. And just like there are di different flavors of cornbread, there are different flavors of Baptists. And so there's Southern Baptists and American Baptists and Progressive Baptists and National Baptists, and there are Primitive Baptists, and there are Independent Baptists, and there are Seventh-day Baptists, believe it or not, and there are Swedish Baptists, there are more varieties of Baptists than there is dogs, I can tell you that. There are scores and scores of Baptists. Now, they are all, they're a little different flavor, like jalapeno and broccoli cornbread. But at their root, they have those basic essential beliefs that make them Baptists. So, it's not any one thing that makes a Baptist a Baptist. If I said, what makes a Baptist a Baptist? You'd probably say, well, it's the baptistry up there. We immerse all the people before they join the church and after they're saved.
But you, you, you understand there are other people that do the very same thing. That alone does not make us Baptists. It's very primary, but it's not the only thing. We're not the only people who believe that. So what is the ingredients in the Baptist recipe? What does it take to turn out a Baptist? Well, somebody made it into the form of an acrostic. And I'll go real quickly, and I'll talk about these in weeks to come, but just let me give you the overview. It takes basically about eight things to make a Baptist eight distinctive beliefs that Baptists have based upon the word Baptist itself as an acrostic. B stands for biblical authority, that the Bible is our final authority in all matters of faith and practice. The A stands for the autonomy of the local church. Autonomy means self-government or self-law. You make your own government. And the local church, Baptists believe, whether they're in a denomination such as Southern Baptist or they're independent Baptist or whatever they are, we believe that the local church is autonomous. It's self-governing. We believe it answers to no higher ecclesiastical authority. We believe that every local Baptist church is, in fact, the headquarters of the Baptist faith. And so if you came to me during the week and walked into my office and said, Where's the headquarters of Baptist? I would say, you're standing in it. And if you went down the street to the next Baptist church and you asked the pastor, he'd probably say the very same thing. And you'd say, well, that's sort of strange, but that's the way Baptists are. We believe each local church embodies the teachings that make it the headquarters of Baptist faith. The P stands for the priesthood of the believer. Every believer has direct access to God. You need not go through a priest or a preacher or some ecclesiastical system. You can go directly to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is one mediator between God and man, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in two ordinances. We don't believe in any sacraments. Sacraments are means of giving people grace. We believe grace comes totally from the cross and from the Lord Jesus Christ and his work from God. The two ordinances that we practice are believer's baptism and the Lord's Supper or the communion. We believe the I stands for individual soul liberty. Every individual has the freedom to choose what his conscience or his soul dictates is right and is responsible to God alone for his choices. Now, of all the doctrines that Baptists believe, that is the most unique. All the scholars would agree that that is the Baptist distinctive of distinctives. We call it soul competency sometimes. We call it soul liberty. Whatever you may call it, It is that the soul is competent before God, and you need not go through some other person to worship God or to have his forgiveness. The S stands for salvation by grace alone and through faith alone. And the T stands, the second T, for two offices in the church. We don't have a hierarchy. We have a very simple government in Baptist churches, we have two offices, a pastor, sometimes referred to in the New Testament as an elder, sometimes referred to in the New Testament as a bishop, 
but all in the same person, three different functions carried out by the pastoral office. The second office we have in Baptist churches are deacons. And then the last S in Baptists stands for the separation of church and state. Those, that's the, that is the recipe. Take all those ingredients and mix them up together and uh, put them in the oven and out comes a Baptist. That's the Baptist recipe. Now, today I stand before you and I'm proud that I am a Baptist. I am a Baptist. Somebody said, what would you be if you weren't a Baptist? I said, I'd be ashamed. I am unashamedly a Baptist. Isaiah 51, verse 1. Look to the rock, the source, the origin from which you came, and the pit, the origin, the source from where you were digged, the Bible says. Some say that Baptist churches began in 32 A.D. when Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The encyclopedia, one version of it says at least, quote, as to the origin of Baptist, there can be no certain date. And so Baptist originated somewhere in antiquity. So far back, we don't really know exactly a date when they began because Baptists are different than other denominations in that we don't have a hierarchy. We don't have a headquarters that's one place upon the planet. And so our origin is nonspecific. I do know where our name came from. Go to Matthew chapter 3 with me today, please. Matthew chapter 3. And uh, you will notice there a verse of Scripture Verse number 1, the book of Matthew, chapter 3, verse 1. In those days came John the Baptist preaching. John the Baptist. And so we take our name from that man who, interestingly, the Lord Jesus Christ said, there's never been a man born among women greater than John the Baptist. So we got a good name there. By the 11th chapter of Acts, verse 26, the disciples were being called Christians first at Antioch, the scripture says. And so that was about 43 AD when the disciples were, uh, up until then, they'd just been simply called disciples in the New Testament. You read through the gospels, there's no denominational name given to them. They're just called his disciples. And then in Antioch, they began to be called Christians. The word Christian has the idea of little Christ. These people were so much like the Lord Jesus that they actually said they're like looking at little Christ, miniature Christ. They so represent him. By 90 AD, the apostolic churches, the churches founded by the apostles, had all developed major flaws in their doctrine. All you have to do is read Revelation chapter 2 and Three, and you see the, the message to the seven churches of Asia. Well, those are seven churches the apostles founded. And you see that they all, except for one, have major doctrinal issues that have, uh, that have entered into those churches. By 300 AD, looking at past 
church history, every single New Testament doctrine had been corrupted by the year 300. And then the world about 400 entered into what we today refer to as the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages. They were dark because there was no light. The light of the Christian faith had just about become extinguished with every kind of doctrinal aberration, every type of superstition, all of it brought in and mixed with Christianity. But even then, this is really important for you to remember, that throughout the Middle East, throughout Europe, there were these little small congregations of people meeting. None of them were large and influential. We don't really know a great deal about them. The historical record is not very complete, but just enough that we know they existed and what they believed. And over here is one in some little alpine valley, and over here is another in another place, and over here is another. And these little bands of Christians were different than the established mainstream church at that time because these people were attempting to hold to New Testament principles and New Testament practices and doctrines. Now, they weren't called Baptists that far back. They actually were called Anabaptists, A-N-A, not anti, not against. Anna means re, and it means to re-baptize. They were re-baptizers. Why in the world would they have been called Anabaptists? Because, or rebaptizers, because as you know, the uh, Roman church had become the state church, and it absolutely required under penalty of law that every child be baptized or christened, sprinkled, and confirmed into that church. It was not a matter of your conscience. It was a matter of law that you had to do so. And if you refused to do so, you would be punished legally as well as ecclesiastically. And so these people operated outside the established church at that time. And they, here, here they were in little autonomous, independent groups of people. They usually took the name of their leaders or the person who was most influential among them, and they had names like Donatist, and they had names like Paulicans. Somebody named Paul was instrumental there. Arnoldists and Albigensians and Waldensians after their leader, Peter Waldo. And you have these little groups, and we find them just sprinkled here and there throughout the entire Middle Ages. And uh, they held to the same doctrines as the Baptist recipe. They believed, for example, in believer's baptism. They believed in the separation of the church from the state, that the state should have zero authority over the church and its life and practices. They believed, for example, in things like the autonomy of the local church. They believed in religious liberty and soul competence, soul liberty, the doctrines that we hold to so dearly. And most of all, what got them in trouble with the government, the state church, was that they rebaptized. They believed that when you baptized or sprinkled or christened a child that was basically uh, a total infant that didn't understand one thing about what was going on, 
they believed that that was really infringing on the spiritual freedom of that child, that you were imposing a religious system upon that child. And they believed that every believer had to come to Christ on his or her own volition, and that they had to, and then that baptism was the profession of that belief, that profession that they had accepted the gospel of Christ. And this was always after salvation, never before salvation. So we refer to it as believer's baptism. We don't baptize unsaved people. And so once a person makes that profession of faith in Christ, then they are standing there, as I've illustrated to you time and time again, under the cross, representing the source of our salvation. And we, we, we picture the gospel with the baptism. Every time we baptize, we picture the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the person standing there is identifying with it. Yes, that's what I believe. I have received Christ for my salvation, and I'm following him in this sign, this symbol this ritual, if you please, that I am identifying with him and I am becoming his follower. And so those little pockets of Christian uh, practice, New Testament churches, endured throughout 800 years of darkness. One here, one there. They had no influence with the government. They were persecuted. They lost their property. They were beaten. They faced persecution in many different forms. They were ostracized from the community socially, but they endured because they believed with all their heart the New Testament principles that we believe. But there was a breakout moment. There was a time when a movement began to take place, not just little scattered pockets of people, but in 1525, a pastor in Switzerland, Ulrich Zwingli, a former priest, became the leader of the French Reformation movement. The movement had already begun under Martin Luther several years before in Germany, but now it moved to Switzerland. Above all, Zwingli believed in what is called sola scriptura. Only the scriptures, the scripture alone is the basis of our belief system. And instead of the ritual that most priests conducted, he would open his Bible and he would preach straight from the Bible, expository messages explaining the Scriptures and the truth of God's Word to the various people there. And he began to bring around him some young men that were converts that trusted Christ. And he began to have Bible studies with these young men. And... Uh, he changed his view of communion from communion being a sacrament that, that gave you grace. He changed to communion being a memorial that we remember the Lord Jesus Christ, but it gave no grace to you. He denied transubstantiation, that the, that the elements in communion, the bread and the, and, the, and the grape, that they actually become the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. He denied that. He said, they're not changed. They are just elements that are symbolic representations of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He began to question 
baptismal regeneration of infants, saying, how could it, salvation be manifested to, a, to an unconscious child by someone sprinkling water on them and saying certain words? He said, no, the Bible says you must be born again or you will never see the kingdom of God. He believed all these things and he taught them to his students. But actually, students went further. He was more conservative than they. And they came out openly, completely rejecting infant baptism as the New Testament mode. And on January the 21st, the students had begun to break away from Zwingli because he was opposing some of these things. He wouldn't go as far as they felt the Scripture indicated. On January the 21st, 1525, in the home of a man named Felix Mons, the group entered into a time of intense prayer. They prayed together for a couple of hours. And they prayed that God would give them spiritual guidance and wisdom because they knew that what they were getting ready to do would be divisive, controversial. They knew that it would cost them in terms of persecution, but they were convinced in their hearts it was the right thing scripturally, and so they did it anyhow. And after the prayer meeting, George Blaurock, a former priest himself, rose to his feet, and he asked Conrad Grable, another former priest, to baptize him by immersion which Grable did baptize Blaurock, and then all the others followed. And they committed themselves to be a church, as best they understood that concept. They committed themselves to holy living and to spreading the gospel at any cost. And, and this really was the birth of the modern Baptist movement. We call it today the Swiss Anabaptist movement, but it's the root of modern-day modern day Baptists. Now, as I said, there were those groups holding to Baptistic principles down through the years. Well, immediately almost the state church in Switzerland began to persecute them. Local governments began to enact extreme measures of punishment. Some of them were imprisoned. I was reading last night and looking at some of the instruments that they used to torture them a screw device made out of wood that had uh, threads on it like a screw, and they put their hand in it and screw this down on them, creating excruciating pain. They would scream in pain, but they never turned back. Some of them were banished from their countries, and sadly, Zwingli, their former friend and mentor, sided with their persecutors. Two years later, on January the 7th, 1527, the persecution had become so extreme. We have our first Baptist martyrdom. Felix Mons was convicted of preaching heretical doctrine. And he was convicted. Isn't this interesting? He was convicted of the crime of baptizing adults. Adults. He was paraded to the bank of the Lament River in Zurich. He praised God and sung as he walked. His mother and his brother walked with him, shouting encouragements to remain steadfast until the end and not to reject Christ. They tied his hands behind him and his feet together, and they trussed him with a rod. 
And then they took him to the middle of the river in a boat and dropped him into the icy river. It was January. And he became the first modern Baptist martyr. Now, through the Middle Ages, lots of people had died, but there wasn't a big movement. The movement continued, though, in 1609, John Smith, S-M-Y-T-H, founded a Baptist congregation in Amsterdam. In 1611, two years later, Thomas Hell was founded a Baptist church in London, was locked up because he challenged the king's right to be the head of the church, and died in jail. In 1639, just a few years later, Roger Williams came to America and established the very first Baptist church in Providence, Rhode Island. And in 1682, the first Baptist church of Charleston, South Carolina was founded, the first Baptist church in the South. In the South in those days, almost everybody was Anglican. In South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, in some of the states, even the Anglicans were, in fact, the state religion, an established religion. Now, why do I give you this history? I'm proud to be a Baptist because of our past, our history. Some of you know that history that I've given. I would venture to say most of you do not. I've been asking people for the last couple of days. I had this on my mind. Have you, when was the last time you went to a Baptist church and heard a sermon on why we're Baptists? And nobody could remember one. To me, it's a tragic thing that we're letting our heritage, we're letting our source, our origin, where we came from, we're letting it die. We don't want to offend anybody. Political correctness has now become so common. And we live in an ecumenical world where all you hear about is all the Christians getting together. Wouldn't that be wonderful if all of them got together? We've become so, you know, we've become so broad-minded that we're flat-headed. We don't know what we believe, and we don't know what we stand for anymore. A few years ago, a preacher came to me locally. He stood there. I was pumping gas at a gas station. He said, we're trying to get together a group of people, pastors in the community, and we sure would like for you to come, Bill. And I said, okay, I'd, I'd be interested in that. I'm for furthering the Lord's work. The only thing I would want to know is that everybody there believes that the Bible's inspired of God and Jesus was God's son and, and, and virgin born and two or three basic things like that. He said, oh, I couldn't guarantee that. I said, then I can guarantee I won't be at the meeting. I mean, you can't mix a rejection of the fundamentals of the faith and the faith and come up with cornbread, right? Baptist cornbread. You've got to put the ingredients in there, and those ingredients are, are very, very clear in God's Word. So Isaiah 51.1 this is the rock from whence we were hewn and the pit from which we were digged, I've just told you about. Proverbs 22 and 28, don't remove the ancient landmarks that George Balrock and Felix Mons and John Hewless and John Leland and a million others have laid down for us. Is this something worth believing and clinging to, or are we ashamed that we're 
Baptist. I know people don't want to admit they're Baptist. That go to church regularly at Baptist churches. I, I thought about getting me a little Baptist pen wearing it. Fellow went to a convention. He had a little pen on his lapel said, I-A-K. And the fellow said to him, what does that stand for? He said, I am confused. He said, well, you don't spell confused with a K. He said, that's how confused I am. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that's how confused the Christian world is today. We no longer know what we believe about the Bible. We've abdicated on our convictions. I'm a Baptist because of the past, but I'm a Baptist because of the present. Another verse, 2 Thessalonians in your Bible, chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Would you agree with me that the world today has become extremely, not the world, that American culture has become very, very anti-traditional? Would you agree? Somebody said everything that we've held to in the past, it ain't nailed down, it's coming loose. I agree. We're against all tradition. Isn't it, isn't it tragic in our country the way that we are treating the Constitution of the United States? We're treating it like it doesn't exist. We're, we, th we think it, it's better if it's new. Well, that's not the teaching of history or of Scripture. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2 and verse 15. Paul writes to the Christians at Thessalonica. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you've been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Stand fast and hold the traditions. Now, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus denounce the Pharisees and Sadducees because of their traditions? Answer, yes. Listen to me. Read my lips. Hear it. Anytime our traditions take precedence over the Word of God, our traditions are wrong. But that doesn't mean that there are not great truths of God's Word that are traditions, and we should hold on to those with all of our might. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. He said, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught. It must be 20 years ago or more, 25, maybe long time. A man named Herschel Hobbs came to Calvary Baptist Church here in our city, and he spoke for three nights, and I went to hear him because I knew him by reputation. He's one of the great Baptist professors, pastors, theologians of that era. And he made a statement, and I was sitting there with my little daytimer in my lap writing notes, and I wrote these words long ago. Quote, from about 300 A.D., there were two streams of Christian belief and practice. All the other denominations stem from them. End of quote. Herschel Hobbes said, if you go back to 300 A.D., the Christian religion branches into two streams. One we re reference as Catholic, and one we reference as Baptist. And all the other denominational beliefs came from those two streams. From the Catholic, for example, come the Re Reformation churches the intent of those people were to reform the Catholic Church, to purify it, and they call themselves Protestants today because they protested what was happening 
at that time and were seeking to correct it. And out of that group, you would have Presbyterians and Episcopalians and Lutherans and, and some other groups. They continued to hold on, though, to many of the practices of Catholicism, a denominational hierarchy, state churches. They continued to believe in sacramentalism, the sacraments partake or, or extend grace, the liturgy, infant baptism, confirmation, and so on. From the Baptist stream all the way down through history has been the free churches, congregationally governed practicing believers' baptism. But there's one doctrine above all that distinguishes our church and every Baptist church. If I talk, We rarely mention it, and that's probably shameful. We need to talk about it more. It's the doctrine, the one doctrine that makes a Baptist a Baptist more than any other. It's the cornmeal and the cornbread. <laughs> To go back to the illustration, if you leave out the cornmeal, you can put all the other ingredients, but you don't have cornbread. If you leave this one out, you can't be a Baptist. What's the doctrine? It's called the doctrine of individual soul liberty. Or many times we refer to it as soul competency or freedom of conscience. Call it what you will. It's one of those things, but they're all, all of them refer to the same doctrinal position. And what do they represent? E.Y. Mullins, who was a famous Baptist theologian, said in 18, he lived between 1860 and 1928. He's been dead a long time. But he said, quote, the principle of the competency of the soul in religion under God is the one distinctive Baptist contribution to the world's religious thought. Herschel Hobbes, the man I went to hear, wrote, out of this principle flow all the other elements of Baptist belief and theology. Leon Macbeth, a current theologian of a, died just a few years ago, the concept of the soul's competency is more than one single doctrine. Actually, it undergirds all the other doctrines that we believe as Baptists. What do I mean by soul competency? I mean that every person is competent under God to make his own moral and religious spiritual decisions without any compulsion, without any coercion, that all worship of God must be voluntary by definition or it's not worship. That we cannot force even our children to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and become Christians. That Every person is responsible to God in all matters of conscience. In other words, we put the monkey on the back of every individual person. You are free to embrace or you are free to reject any or all religious teaching. It's your choice. It's freedom of choice. And then we believe you're free to witness to that religious faith as long as you have a proper respect for the rights of other people. And where do we get that in the Scripture? Listen to me. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God made a tree, put it in the middle of the garden, created Adam and Eve, and says, okay, now you choose. 
the power of choice. You can accept my word or you can reject it and you will feel the consequences in the day that you eat, you will die. Soul competency. You have the competency to make that decision. The Ten Commandments. Blessed are you if you obey. Cursed are you if you reject the law of Moses to the people of Israel. Joshua chapter 24. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Soul liberty. Over and over, the Lord Jesus Christ uses the phrase, whosoever will, implying that you have the competency. You have the responsibility to choose for yourself. Romans 14 and 5, let every man be persuaded in his own mind. Competency. Verse 12, every one of us will give an account of himself to God. Responsibility. 1 Corinthians 10 and 29, why is my liberty judged by someone else's conscience? And what are the implications of that, the practical? You say, this is theory. Okay, now I get very practical. The doctrine of soul liberty and competency is your God-given ability to make your own choice about Jesus Christ or any other religious belief. Your soul liberty means that no person No governmental entity, no ecclesiastical power can compel you to faith or stand between you and God. You are alone, naked before the creator of the universe and responsible for your choices. Soul competency means you are not saved because your parents were Christians and you are not saved because you were baptized as an unknowing infant. This week, there was a work, there was some people working here on our property. And it was Friday, and I said, you know what? I have not said a word to them about their soul. I've been talking to them over and over almost every day. I'm going to go and talk to them and see if they're saved. I can't let them leave here and, 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 and have spent an hour talking to them. And my conscience was bothering me that I'd failed to witness. So I, got, I came by my office, got me a handful of books and pamphlets, and I walked to where they were working. And I said, now, all week we've talked about what you're doing, but now we're going to talk about what I do. Do you know that you're saved? And one of the people looked me straight in the eye and said, I absolutely know I'm saved. I thought, wonderful. How do you know that? Because I was sprinkled as a baby. And that person is depending on that. And I like this person so much, and I thought, how tragic. How absolutely spiritually blind. You're depending on that? You're depending on what someone else did. Mom and dad took you, some religious figure sprinkled some water on your head, and you're depending on that? Where's your will? Where's your choice? Where's your responsibility in this? Soul competency means the soul can approach God without going through a pastor, a priest, or a church. 1 Timothy 2, 5, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Soul competency means you can read the Scripture, pray, repent, 
confess your sin, be saved, and be guided by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God alone. You say, well, why do we need a church? We're here to aid you in that and equip you in that and help you and assist you in that. But you are responsible before God. And that's a belief and a tradition that I think is worth keeping. It's the pit from which we're digged and the rock from which we're hewn. It is the ancient landmark that defines Baptist life in the world today. My points have been, I'm a Baptist because of the past. I'm, secondly, I'm a Baptist because of the present. Thirdly, I'm a Baptist because of the future. No, I didn't write it like that. I said, as I look to the future, I'm concerned for Baptist. Because Jude 3 says, I exhort you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. And we're not contending anymore. But I'll talk to you about that in the future. I don't have time for the third point today. Now, there's one, one other of those Baptist ingredients is salvation by grace through faith. Salvation by faith alone through God's grace alone. I've made the point you're responsible for your soul and your eternal well-being, not the church, not the state, not the pastor. You're responsible. I'll also have good news for you, and that is that Jesus has done everything that needs to be done for you to be saved today. He has opened up the way. In fact, the Bible uses the word he has made access for us in Hebrews. And all you have to do is come to Jesus, and there's power in the blood of Jesus. And he'll extend to you his saving grace if you'll put your trust in him this morning. Stand to your feet with me, if you will, please.